0: It is my pleasure and my joy to be with you here this morning, and on Monday morning as I went into my office to begin to get ready for this trip, I was speaking at George Fox University for a couple of days before coming here, the telephone rang. I don't usually go in on Mondays, it's my Sabbath day, but this week was a different schedule, and the phone rang and a young woman was, uh, said to me, hey, Pastor Sundar, do you have a few minutes to talk to me? I said, sure. She said... "I." Began my prayer time this morning, and I prayed, was praying through my usual list when all of a sudden something completely unexpected happened. She said, I began to sob uncontrollably, and I didn't know what that was all about. It had never happened to me before. And she said, I felt as if God was saying to me to say to you that your trip to Oregon is going to be incredibly significant and life-transforming for one particular individual. It might be you here this morning. I don't know. So I want to give you a framework in which I would like you to listen to what I have to share with you today. We Believe in God's sovereignty, you're here by divine appointment. So I'd like you to ask yourself, why of all the people that I could be listening to, am I listening to him this morning? Why of all the times and seasons in my life, is this season in my life the time I'm listening to this? And why of all the passages in scripture from which he could be speaking, is he, has he chosen Isaiah 55 for this morning? It's a framework I'd like you to maintain, not only today, but through the rest of the series if you plan to come. And by the way, as you listen, I want to remind you that we haven't just stopped worshiping and doing something else now. Listening attentively to God's word is an act of worship because you believe his word, not mine, his words are worthy of of, of your best attention because they are weighty words. His words carry weight. So listening attentively is an act of worship. And for me, preaching is an act of worship to the extent that it reflects something of an internal passion and joy that I have in this person that I am exalting in my preaching. So let us both continue to worship God as we hear the word of God. I remember the first time I got on a motorbike. I was six years old. My uncle had a big Royal Enfield, a British uh, motorbike, um, and I sat on the back, and he said, Sundar, one thing you need to remember, when we go into a curve and I'm leaning in, don't do what you feel like doing, which is to try and straighten out the motorbike by leaning in the opposite direction. He said, lean into the curve. It'll be okay. The motorbike won't fall over. Have you ever wondered what is it that keeps a heavy motorbike Stable at an angle like this when it's going around a curve. I mean, if you park it that way, it falls down. What keeps it at an angle there? It's because of something called a gyroscopic torque. When you take any wheel, anything that's dense, and spin it really fast around one axis, and then you spin the whole thing around another axis, like when you're going around a curve, there's something called a gyroscopic torque that works in the third dimension and helps to straighten it and keep it straight. It's the same principle on which the inertial guidance systems for all our rockets are built that go into outer space and they come back and are able to stay on track because of this thing called the gyroscopic effect. Life's like that. There are a constant series of forces, small and large, that keep knocking us and attempting to knock us off course on an attempt to remain in a long obedience in the same direction in our life with Christ. And I've discovered that in my life, there are several passages of Scripture and biblical perspectives or insights that have functioned as gyroscopes in my life to keep my soul on track. And these four messages, this morning's message, tonight's message, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, are four of those gyroscopes in my soul. And I would just like to share them with you. And I have probably, not probably, I have definitely preached these sermons dozens of times in my life compared to any others. Uh, The reason for that is that I need them desperately. Uh, This gyroscopic effect is heavier the faster the wheel spins. And each time I preach one of these messages, the wheels are spinning a little bit faster in my life again. In the 32 years that I've been at Rexdale, I really don't know whether anybody has really been changed by my preaching, but I know that I am completely different than the person I was 32 years ago. <clears throat> we so as an old Jewish legend, a prophet said, he doesn't preach to change the world, he preaches to keep the world from changing him. And so I want to share with you these four gyroscopes, beginning with the first one. And to set the stage for the first one, I want to tell you a story that's a well-known, many preachers have told it, I heard it first time years ago uh, in, a, in a book by Gordon MacDonald called Restoring a Spiritual Passion. He tells the story of a a Westerner who went to Africa on a safari, and he hired many natives to help carry all his equipment with him. And he was really pleased with the incredible speed and the progress that he made that first day. He was right on his plans. So he went to bed that night, he got up early the next morning, all set to go on another great day, anticipating great progress, when to his utter surprise, he found that all the natives were sitting down refusing to move. And when through an interpreter he explored the reason for this strange behavior, he was told this. Yesterday we went so fast that we are waiting for our souls to catch up with our bodies. (laughs) It is about as incisive a comment on North American life as you can get from anywhere. We're going so fast that our souls are lagging way behind our bodies. Pastors perhaps are more in danger of this or any leaders of any large enterprises probably. Bill Hybels, who's a senior pastor of Willow Creek Church, famous church, huge church, he said, the only thing that I've ever written that's worthwhile quoting, he said is this, I was doing God's work at a pace that was destroying God's work in me. I was doing God's work at a pace that was destroying God's work in me. And we don't all have to be leaders of big enterprises to experience that. We're all leaders in various settings, in a work setting. We're leaders in in a home, managing our homes, in a church team, in a softball league, in the community, whatever it is. And it's possible in every one of these ways to live at such a pace. And the temptation is there, to live at that pace so that our souls are lagging far behind our bodies. A gyroscope for this dimension of of, of our lives is Isaiah chapter 55. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 55 or just listen to me as I read for you. The problem is articulated for us in verse two. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for what? For which that which does not satisfy. Bread is what feeds me at any given time. It's my inner life. Labor that's satisfied is labor that bears some fruit, that's fruitful, purposeful, not futile. And so, verse 2 describes a condition in which neither at the level of being nor at the level of doing have we got any returns for what we have spent. This happens in many ways. We all have some goals, some desires, big or small, private or public, and we draw plans for them. We set in motion an agenda, but it involves other people's cooperation most of the time. But they have plans of their own and they're busy trying to get us to help them achieve their plans. <laughs> things don't go very well most of the time. Very, things, very few things in life go according to our plans. And what happens in those times, we resort to plan B, manipulation, control, coaxing, cajoling. It doesn't work. And eventually, we run out of plans. No more seminars to go to. No more five easy steps. No more books to read. And sometimes, even if we succeed, we find ourselves in that dried out condition. One pastor of a large megachurch once said, the bigger my church became, the more isolated I felt. I was dry in my soul. See the repeated theme? I was dry in my soul, and I was pulling from the surface parts of my life to keep the vision going. That's called superficial living. That's what happens when we work at a pace when our souls are left far behind our bodies. We become a superficial people doing things superficially and we are honestly described ourselves as a people who have spent our money on what is not bread and our labor on what doesn't satisfy. Hundreds of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now what's the solution for that? The solution is wrapped on either side of the problem. Verse one says four times, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And on the other side, verse three, incline your ear and come to me. Listen diligently, eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food so that your soul may live. Four times you are invited to come to God and to feast on him by listening to him, by inclining our ears, listening diligently, which means it takes work. You see, the the condition of verse two, Where we have spent everything on what is not bread, neither at the level of our being or becoming or doing is there satisfaction. It's not because we have worked hard. Hard work is not the problem. It is working in such a way that our souls have lagged way behind our bodies. It is working without stopping to regularly come to God so we can feed on what he has to give to us so our souls can live. That's the fundamental problem. And the tragedy is compounded by the fact that in the story of those African natives, it took them only one day to discover that their souls were lagging behind and they refused to move. We can live that way for 10, 15, 20, 30 years without realizing that we left our souls way behind long, long ago. Okay, so we listen. We want to listen. What do we listen to? What does God want to say to us when we listen? He continues in the second part of verse three all the way to verse five. He said, I will make an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In order to understand what God promises when we stop and come to him, we need to understand this thing called the covenant with David. The Davidic covenant is a very key moment in the unfolding of redemptive history, and you can read about it in 2 Samuel 7. Let me give you some background. David has finally become king over all of Israel. Saul is dead. I'm gonna hear a lot more about King Saul tonight. And he has built himself a magnificent temple, and now David says... How can I live in a magnificent temple and God just dwell in this tent? You might recall that God had told Moses to build a tabernacle, a movable tent that could be taken down and put up again in which God's people were to worship him. And David said, I want to build God a magnificent palace just like mine. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, that's good, what you have in your heart is great, do it. Now that's an unbeatable combination for recipe for success. You're a king, you got lots of money, you got plenty of authority, and now you have a prophet of God saying, go to it. (laughs) What more do you need? And in in a phrase I've never forgotten, author Eugene Peterson in his book on David says, that night God withdrew the building permit. (laughs) (laughs) He comes to David and he says, through Nathan, he says, go tell David, can you please ask David this question? In all these generations where your people have been moving and I've been moving with them in this temple, did I ever ask anybody to build me a temple of cedar? So David, where did you get this idea from that I want you to build me something permanent? I'm quite happy to live where I am in this tent is this your idea or is it mine I never asked you to do anything like this and then through the prophet Nathan he submits, to him, submits him to a comprehensive review of the history of his own people where the verb there are 23 verbs and God is the subject of each of those words basically he says to David I did this, I did this, I did this I'm doing this, I will do this for you <laughs> David full of himself full of his plans for God good though they were was subjected to a grand rehearsal of what God had done for him and his people, of what God is going to do for him, and what God is doing for him at this particular moment. And specifically, he says to him in verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It is a play on the Hebrew word for house. There are two, two meanings to the word translated house. One is a building like this, like David wanted to build. The other is a, is a house is more like a home, a dynasty of sons and daughters, offspring. Now, there's a massive difference between buildings and sons and daughters. Buildings, however impressive they are, they are lifeless. They cannot transform anybody. This building will never transform anybody inside it, nor will any other building. Buildings don't reproduce themselves. But sons and daughters are living organic realities, not mechanical entities. And they reproduce themselves and are able to influence and touch other people and transform them. So what basically God was saying to David was, David, no matter how impressive the plans you had for me, and I like your heart, so I'll let your son do something like that, but that's not going to accomplish anything. Before you can do anything for me, David, that will make any difference in areas that matter, I have to do something for you first that is living, organic, alive, pulsating with my life and able to reproduce itself. That's what he was saying to David. And in verse 18, it says, then King David sat down. (laughs) It's a good thing to do when God has just finished telling you, sit down for a while. What you are going to do for me is going to accomplish nothing. Let me do something for you first. David sat down. Eugene Peterson in his commentary on this uh, passage says this, when we sit down, the dust raised by our furious activity settles. The noise generated by our building operations goes quiet. And we become aware of the real world, God's world. And what we see leaves us breathless. It's so much larger, so much more full of energy and action than our ego-fueled actions, so much clearer and saner than the plans that we had projected. Not only that, God says to David, and in the process, David, I'm going to change you. Yeah, your son's going to do all this, but I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you a witness, I'm going to make you a leader, and I'm going to make you a commander. A witness is someone who just tells it like it is, a leader who tells it in such a way that people can follow if they want to, and a commander is one who has authority to make people follow him. And so this was, of course, referring eventually to David's uh, son, Jesus, through whom the nations will be touched. But in this context, God was saying to David, what I will do for you will use you to broadcast my glory. In such a way, you will be a witness, a leader, and a commander to the nations of the world. So what God had for David was bigger, much bigger, much more effective, much more life-transforming and earth-shattering truly than anything David could have imagined was just a little building after all. By the way, this has nothing to do with laziness. Sitting down wasn't abdicating responsibility. Because if you read the life of David after that, it was about as busy as you could imagine, getting things ready for his son, who he said was inexperienced. So he had to get people ready, advisors ready. He had to get money ready. He had to get materials ready. He had to get plans ready for the temple. His was a busy life after this. It has nothing to do with busyness. Sitting down is a picture of surrendering control and initiative. And let God take the initiative and you live in response to that. This, by the way, is a principle that is ingrained right throughout scriptures. In the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, which describes the, the succession of creation of days. I don't know about you, but if I were writing Genesis chapter 1, I would have concluded each day's work with and morning and evening, day 1, morning and evening, day 2, right? Oh, that's how we think. When did your day begin today? When the alarm got set up when you got up. And when does the day end? (laughs) When you finally fall into bed at night. But that's not how the Genesis chapter one reads. It's evening Mm. and morning day one, evening and morning day two. The biblical day begins at night. And you know what happened at night in those days? Long before there was any lights, everybody went to sleep. You did nothing. So the day begins by you doing nothing, (laughs) Peterson says again, sleep is God's method of getting us out of the way eight hours every day so we don't interfere with his work. (laughs) And we awaken into a day in which God has been at work and we join him. So we work hard, but he's taken the initiative and we enter into his work and become partners together with him. The Psalms, which are Israel's prayer book and our prayer book, also emphasize this. There are two psalms early on in the collection, four and five. One is a morning psalm and one is an evening psalm. No doubt, if you and I were putting that collection together, we would put the morning psalm first and then the evening psalm, right? day starts in the morning. But Psalm 4 is an evening psalm and Psalm 5 is a morning psalm. So even in our prayers, we are reminded of the fact that we move from rest to work, not from work to rest that work that is transformative in nature, that doesn't destroy our souls, is work that flows out of sitting in God's presence, not the other way around. Now in verses six to nine we find a a discordant note suddenly entering, at least an unexpected note. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. We could understand that a little bit more. We might even expect it if this were Jeremiah or Hosea or Amos, one of those prophets just thundering God's judgment upon a nation that was headlong headed for in rebellion. No, but this is a gentle passage. This is a passage inviting our tired, weary people to come to eat to a banqueting feast. You don't usually encounter a call to repentance in that context until you understand it in this context. because the word repentance basically means to change your mind. And that's what he's saying. He said, your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are your ways and your thoughts above mine, his, his thoughts above ours. And so the call to repentance to change our mind is to acknowledge that, is to acknowledge this particular foolishness, if you will, of working without stopping to listen, of working in such a way that our souls are left far behind. And it takes courage to stop. In a society where speed and work are almost core values, stopping seems like abdicating responsibility. Very early on in my pastoral ministry, I remember leadership magazine that had come out and they were well known for their cartoons. And I remember thumbing through the first issue and there was a cartoon with a, showing a pastor who was on his knees praying and the secretary had poked her head in through the door and said, oh good, you're not busy. <laughs> we don't say it that way, but we have that feeling. There's so much to do. What are you sitting down for? Do we pay you to sit in your office for an hour a day when there's more phone calls to be made, more studying, more people to be seen? It takes courage to stop. And it also costs something, but it's a a cost that you might not expect. In in that invitation, the beginning, he says, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And I was always intrigued by that. How do you come to buy something without cost or without money? You You can come and buy with money, or you can come and take without money. But you don't buy without money. Unless the currency that we are being asked to give is not money, but something else. And that something else is time. Because when David sat down, time was still sticking by one hour every hour. That never changes. Every time we stop and down tools to attempt to have his thoughts and his ways be exchanged for our thoughts and our ways, time, valuable time is running by and we're paying it. This was driven home to me in a personal experience, visually in a way that I've never forgot. It's almost 30 years ago. A church in Calgary invited me to come and speak, and this church actually did this as a ministry to pastors. Uh, Their only requirement was to preach on either weekend, and then for the week in between, they gave us a car, they gave us a house to stay in, tickets to the Calgary Stampede, and really the goal was to enjoy ourselves in between those two commitments. So my wife and I, along with her sister and brother-in-law, we invited them to join us because we had all this given to us, uh, went to Calgary. And as part of our trip in between, we took a magnificent highway called Icefields Parkway that runs all the way from Banff, about 40 miles north of Calgary, all the way to Jasper. Uh, I'd never seen the Rockies before. So we was really looking forward to this. And so we'd already booked our hotel in Jasper. And in, the, in July, it's 11 o'clock at night before the sun sets there. So we were in no hurry at all. And a four-hour trip, which is what it takes if you drive with the speed limit, took us 11 hours. And the reason it took us 11 hours was that every turn in the road, I just stopped and gawked at magnificence like I'd never seen before. So I would pull over and stop. Lakes that were emerald green, a color that I'd never seen, I couldn't get my eyes off them. And then little canyons here and there, you could stop by and explore to your heart's content. And we had a magnificent, unforgettable day. Well, we finally got to Jasper around 9 o'clock, I think at night, we had dinner, and I was looking forward to an equally leisurely magnificent drive on the way back. But my wife and her sister wanted to do some shopping and spent too much time on that, and it was one o'clock before we had to leave, before we got to leave. And I had a 5.30 appointment in Calgary. Now I only had four hours, which means I had to drive pretty well nonstop. And you know something? The same mountains, the same canyons, the same lakes, that were a source of joy, soul-enlarging joy on the way up were now nothing but irritations. Because I hadn't got to Calgary yet. And when I finally broke through to the flatlands, I remember, Ah, I have arrived. This is what I was waiting for. I didn't think much of it then, but months later I was in my study, probably I think preaching, preparing a sermon on prayer when God said to me, were those mountains any less spectacular on the way back? Were those canyons any less inviting and worthy of exploration? Were those lakes any less pristine, pure, and brilliant green? No, but you had no time. You had lots of time on the way up and I lavished my delights upon you. You had none on the way back and I got boring to you. That's the problem with God. Helmut Thieleke, I think was a German pastor, he said most people find prayer boring and so they only pray five minutes. He said the problem is prayer is boring because they only pray five minutes. <laughs> it takes time to, to, to experience the delights of God. So the currency is time. Now if we did, if we did, Pay that currency to let his thoughts and his ways replace our thoughts and our ways so that our souls can catch up with our bodies. Then he entices us with some beautiful promises. First of all, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, this is not in the first instance a, a, a promise only for pastors who claim the fact that they, that, or they pray that their word will not return to them void. God has many other such promises like that about his word, but this is not the primary purpose. The, un, the verse in context is God speaking to people who have reached that condition of verse two. I've spent my money on what is not bread and my labor on what doesn't satisfy. And God says to them, if you come, if you're willing to trust me and stop, then my word will do exactly what I promised to do. I will give you my thoughts and my ways instead of your thoughts and your ways. And he says, he calls that bread and seed. Now bread is what feeds me. And seed is what I plant to get more bread to feed others that I can give away. Which, of course, was exactly the problem in verse 2, right? I've spent my money on what is not bread. And here he says, I'll give you bread. There I have spent my money on what does labor that doesn't satisfy. Here he says, I will give you seed. You will plant something organic. You know something? When God gives you seed, then it becomes bread. It then becomes seed for somebody else as well. He builds the house for you that is alive and it reproduces. Otherwise, I'm just giving dead stuff. That's his promise to us. The condition of verse 2 is going to be transformed into this situation where you have bread and seed. And by the way, on the Tuesday night's message, the whole message is gonna be on how to do this, how to actually interact with the scriptures in such a way in God's presence that his thoughts and his ways are slowly replacing our thoughts and our ways so that we begin to feed upon bread and so that we have seed to sow in other people's lives as well. So we're able to come Tuesday night we'll just be building up on this as well. He then finishes with two pictures that describe this, this kind of a life That as God promises to give us this word, which just like the snow and the rain come down, produces bread and seed. He says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hand. I I call that a picture of contagious joy. Not only will you be joyful, things around you are going to become joyful as well. when we live in this way and work with others in this way, especially if we lead in any way, where we are stopping regularly for our souls to catch up with our bodies, where God feeds us bread so we have seed to sow, the people around us begin to experience the joy that we get as well. That's also in contrast to living the other way. Those African natives stopped After day one, we can't work for you anymore like this. Driven people produce driven, anxious, joyless people. But as we learn to live like this, the joy that is in our heart becomes contagious. I remember a pastor of a mega church who came to me once. I think it was in a conference that I was speaking. I was speaking about repentance. And he said, I need to repent of something really significant. He said, I just finished leading a church through a large building program. See, there was again, buildings again, so necessary but so dangerous. He said, but I realized I built that building on a trail of broken relationships. That's worse too, I spent my money on what is not bread. I got this massive testimony to my leadership and it doesn't satisfy because there's a broken relationship trail behind it. Get the picture? But there's another way of building. <laughs> if you let God do the building, if you let him build his house first, he said there's contagious joy. And then the second picture is transformed lives. Not only contagious joy, but transform lives. Instead of the thorn bush shall come the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now thorns and briars are pokey things, scratchy, pokey things. And people are like that. We ourselves are like that at times. But God says I will transform the people. Instead of scratching other people the wrong way, They will become fragrant like the myrtle and fragrant like the cypress. Why? It will make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This transformation will happen in such a way that God gets the glory. And of course, the reason God gets the glory is all we did was sit down. (laughs) Can't claim a lot of credit for sitting down. But when we sit down and he does that work of exchanging his thoughts and his ways for our thoughts and our ways, when we get bread that can become seed, then he gets the glory and we get the joy and that's exactly the way he wants it to be every day of our lives. I want to end with this brief quotation from Urban uh, uh, McManus's book, Seizing the Divine Moment, when he talks about the difference between power and influence. We, we live this way of letting our souls lag behind our bodies, focusing on the doing with our thoughts and our ways and there's a lot of power exercised in that. But living this other way gives us influence, which is much, more di- much different than power. Listen to this observation. The problem with positional power is that while it may control the actions of another human being, it does not capture the heart. Influence, on the other hand, wins the heart and soul of another through the strength of one's own character and personhood. Power shapes what a person does, influence shapes who they become. Influence is born out of trust and finds its strength in the connection of heart and soul. Can you just imagine how different would be all of the spheres in which we live and work and move and lead if it was influence and not power that characterized those relationships?